Norma Van Dalen, thank you for joining me today on the Chack Insider. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you and I have never had an extended conversation, correct? That's right. For full disclosure, we don't really know each other. That's true. So that makes this opportunity really good. So I get to ask questions. Now, you've been around Community Heights for a while. Tell me about your earliest involvement up until about the time you went on the mission field and What motivated you to go? I came to Community Heights when I was about 15 years old. My parents decided to leave the church we were attending so that my younger brother and I could attend a a good youth group. So that was my first exposure. So you would have been in like 10th grade. Right. And you started coming to Community Heights Youth Group. And how long did you last around Newton? When did you go off to college? Where did you go? And then how did you ever get onto the mission field? Okay. Well, in Community Heights, they had what they called a missions conference every fall. And I was one of those kids who listened to the missionary in her presentation, and one of them spoke on Romans 10, asking, you know, would we be willing to give our lives to tell those who don't know anything about Jesus that he is the answer to life? He gives hope and he gives peace. And so that was my first, the first time God really spoke to my heart. And so I said yes. I said yes that time. And then I kind of backpedaled a little bit because I had plans for my own life. I really had other plans for what I wanted to do with my life. And I wasn't sure I really wanted to give it all up. But I ended up going to what is now Crown College and attended there for four years, during which time I heard missions again emphasized. And my increasing commitment was to go. But I tried one more time to get out of that commitment. Hmm. So after I graduated from Crown, I thought, well, I'm going to go into medicine and I'm going to start out in radio tech. And I had a great opportunity. I had a full ride, full scholarship at a place, an institute in Des Moines. And as I started to think about that, God began to speak to me through his word. You know, if you put your hand to the plow and then turn back. And also just that whole idea of, you know, when I make a commitment to God, it sticks. And that was the first time I had to say, okay, God, I, I give you my all and I will do it. So I proceeded to go to New York City and work there for two years and also had increased contact with missionaries coming back through New York City on their home assignments. So what was your major at Crown? I majored in missions or cross-cultural communications And what did you do in New York City? In New York City, I actually worked to pay off my school loan. I worked as a secretary and I also cleaned houses on the side. And then I worked another night job on the Alliance Life campaign. Why New York City from here? Well, I had a chance to work, um, and I really wanted a different experience. I wanted to go cross-culturally before I went over to another country. Mm-hmm. And that was definitely a cross-cultural experience for someone from Iowa to end up in New York City. So you had a full-ride scholarship to radio... A radiology. Radiology, program. okay. Mm-hmm. And that would have been a master's program? No, that would have been just entry level. Okay, so yeah. you must have had good grades at Crown. Yeah, I did well. So you're pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You were a 4.0 and you know it, weren't you? Not quite. I, I had one, one non 4.0 score. <laughs> she had one B plus in four years. Yeah, it sounds like my daughter. Anyway, you went off to New York City and you worked, you paid off your student loans. When you were doing that, were you thinking, okay, I got to pay these student loans off before I can embark out onto the mission field? That's right. I knew that that was part of the plan. That's so it part wasn't of the a detour. Package. No. That was part of the plan. Yeah. And you, in New York City, you would have been close to NIAC. I was. Which mm-hmm. is the Alliance uh, Seminary and College, right, right, out there in just north of New York City. Did you have any connection? Did you go there ever or visit? 
I actually was in one of their um, college and career groups, and there were several people who were very influential in my life during that time. Jean Evans is a person who was a missionary in Vietnam, and then when Vietnam closed, they came back to the States. And he was just one of these people that always encouraged young people to be all that God mm. had created them to be. And even though I was very shy and very introverted, he always saw potential. And so I, mm. was, I was deeply impacted by his life to continue on in that journey that I thought God had me. And so this was a group. Does Nyack have a church connected to it right there? They had a church at that time. It was one of the, it was Simpson Memorial. It no longer exists as Simpson Memorial now. But I had a great influence with many missionaries who were on home assignment during that year, contact with them. So you're there two years out of college. And then what happened? I've always wondered this, and I've never talked to, I've talked to a lot of Alliance missionaries over the years. I've never asked them this. What is the process that you have to go through to get approved into the Great Commission Fund family, to be actually funded by the denomination to go on the mission field. It has changed a bit since I first started in the whole process. Basically, you had to be debt-free. You had to have at least two years of what they called um, ministry practical service in a church or in a ministry of some kind. And you also had to go out with at least a master's degree if you're a single woman or a guy. Let me, can I just jump in one quick second and speak to our listeners, our church people? You have to have a two, two years of in-ministry experience, usually at a local church somewhere in the States. So mm-hmm. we are wanting to collect some of those people that are going to be going out onto the Alliance Mission Field in the coming years and actually have them do their two-year assignments here at Community Heights. So that's something that's running in the background that we'd like to that we're we're moving toward. I don't know how quickly that's going to happen, but that is definitely something we would like to take advantage of and help young people or middle-aged people for that matter get that practical ministry experience before they go out. And that's part of our vision in the next, you know, 5 to 10 years is to send more missionaries out onto the field and that avenue would be one of the ways that we would do that. So you had to you had to have a master's degree be debt-free. And what was that third one? You had a third one, I think. The practical ministry service. Oh, two years ministry service. And then did you have to go like before this questioning board or anything like that? We go through the same process that they do for ordination, only you're ordained if you're a man and if you're a woman, you're consecrated. And the consecration and ordination in the alliance, consecration is for women, ordination is for men. What's the difference between the two processes? Do you know? My understanding, really nothing. So the woman has to go through the same rigor as the guy, but she doesn't get ordained, but she gets consecrated. That's correct. Okay. So I think some people would think that consecration in the Alliance for Women is some kind of a watered-down process. It really isn't. No. And they have to go through the same stuff that the guys go through. And so a woman who's consecrated in the Alliance is... I don't, I don't know the terms to use, but she's up there. I mean, she has mm-hmm. gone through a lot of education and a lot of uh, mentoring and scrutiny, I think, at the same time. That's so right. how did you determine which field? How was it determined which field you'd go on? You can apply open, like I did, or you may apply with a preference for a field or an area where you'd like to serve. You know, you have social justice and compassion, people who serve in different types of ministries in other places. Or you have people who are in creative access countries. They would have a, you know, a different, they'd have to go into that country under different, not a traditional missionary or international worker uh, profile. 
You left when you were about 18, and you went up to Crown. Have you spent any time more than just a few months in the summer living back in Newton since then, other than like your home assignment years? No, basically not. So you were a part of Community Heights for maybe two, three years in high school. What do you remember about Community Heights from back then? They had a great interest in missions, and I think through that youth group that was strong then, we had several people called into missions and into ministry into pastoral ministry. Several of the people that were in my youth group have, are serving as pastors. And your serve. parents were attending here at the time. Tell me about them and what their involvement was. Well, they came to Community Heights and, and attended until the time of their, their death, actually. Um, they in, were involved, basically. My dad was one of those who was very quiet behind the scenes. He mm-hmm. loved to just serve the people. He worked as a deacon. Okay. You know, brought people to church who couldn't drive any longer, took food out of the food pantry, delivered it around, and did some of those practical things. Probably one of the most interesting things was their stint working with the college and career group with one of the pastors, and my mom playing, um, what did you call it, broom ball on the ice that people couldn't believe that she was like 16. <laughs> she was probably almost 70 at that time, still out there on the, on the ice with the kids playing broom ball. And your mom's name? Margaret. Margaret. And she always served in the kitchen, did those okay. things behind the scenes. Cool. And did you have siblings that attended here as well? I have one younger brother who attends now, Gary and Lori. Your older siblings, did they ever attend or were they already out of the house by then? They were pretty much out of the house by that time. My The one sister that's older than I was already at Iowa State, so she didn't really ever attend here. So you applied open and they said to you, will you go to Mexico? Is that the first place you went? No, I applied open. Uh, they thought about sending me to Great Britain but decided that I would fit better with a team that was new and, and wanted to launch new things. And I was a little bit younger then. I could <laughs> qualify as someone who wanted to be adventurous. And so I went to Venezuela, South America. And they'd only really worked in Venezuela about four years before I arrived on the scene. So most of our work was, you know, grassroots church planting, leader development, disciple making, all of the things that you do from, from ground zero. How long were you in Venezuela? I was in Venezuela 20 years. 20 years. How long have you been on the mission field? Well, all told, because in, in the home and ministries phase before I went, I worked for four years, five years with Native Americans here in the States. Okay. So 35 years, about all told. 35 years. So you you might be about as old as I am. I don't know. Well, nobody will never know, will That's, we? <laughs> well, if we don't tell, they won't. <laughs> so when you worked with, with Native Americans, that was before you went out of the country. Yes. And where did you do that? I actually based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota, but okay. I worked all over the United States with a theological education by extension program. So I did a lot of testing of their materials all over from North Carolina to uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and up to Dunseith, North Dakota as far west as Hayes, Montana. And you worked with uh, educational institutions in these places? Well, actually, it was we a lay leader program, lay leader development. Okay. So we used uh, materials that were designed originally for people who had reduced understanding of English mm-hmm. and very little access to what we would call a professional track for theological training. Okay. And you enjoyed that? I loved it. Mm-hmm. But, but then at some point, you finished that. How did that transition work? I really enjoyed and learned a lot from my Native American friends, but I knew that it wasn't the place where God had for me to stay long term. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult as a white woman to work in that yeah. area yeah. with the challenges that at that time they faced. So then I, that's when I continued on the overseas track. Tell me something you learned from the Native culture. I learned to respect silence. 
I learned to understand their sense of humor, which is very different than others. And I also learned that it takes a very long time to gain trust. And I was blessed by receiving their trust. That's cool. So I spent 10 summers in British Columbia working with Native people. And so that would be the only cross-cultural group I really have any significant experience with. And I'm not the type that's quiet for very long, but like you, I learned that you just can sit around the campfire and just be there, and that communicates to them the fact that you're willing to engage in presence with them. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting. I noticed, though, when I would get back to eastern New York, where in the Albany area where I was based at the time, I would say to my wife, I like my white culture. I like things quick. And I like to ask somebody for something and pop in and pop out and, and just move. And I realized that that is not, that is not Native culture. Mm-hmm. If you need to ask somebody a question, you better be prepared to have a lot of sideways conversation and Mm -hmm. interaction and then you think to yourself okay well if you align the culture with like biblical teaching and maybe fruit of the spirit type stuff native culture has got it over our fast you know western mindset of productivity Mm -hmm. and quick 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 Mm -hmm. and so i learned a lot about myself about what culture is Mm -hmm. all about and so that was pretty interesting but this is about you, Norma, not me. So you're in Venezuela for 20 years. What is your greatest like feeling of fulfillment from being there? I think the greatest um, payback, if you want to put it in those terms for me, is just the joy of seeing those young men and women that I worked with and discipled and walked with through theological training. You know, taking the reins and taking the lead and continuing to teach people about Jesus and love them and start churches all over Venezuela. And they come back to me still. Still okay. there's that, that, that camaraderie, the sense of sharing in ministry and the love for one another that we have. How are you connected with them today? Today it's mostly through, you know, Messenger, Facebook. Mm-hmm. That's basically the only way. And we have WhatsApp too, so sometimes I get to actually hear their voices. Okay. So, so you said you had to have a master's degree, though. Yes. How, how did you attain that, and what, and what did you do? Well, I, my, my dream was always to go to Fuller Theological Seminary because they had a great intercultural or missions um, graduate study program. So I saved everything I could and actually was able to attend there one year after I worked with the Native Americans. Then I could not finish there because of the cost. It was incredibly costly, and the okay. only scholarships they give are to those who are non-U.S. people to study there. The greatest takeaway from that time was the experience of being in the classroom with world leaders from everywhere, Mm. and just to learn with them and from them. And I think that was probably one of the best educational experiences I've had. And then I went to Wheaton Graduate School and finished there, and continued to work full-time with this Theological Education by Extension program. And what is your degree title? My degree is in intercultural communications, because at that time, most of us were thinking creative access countries, and we didn't want a theological degree behind our names, because that limits your access Mm. to entry. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. So you subscribe to the notion that you learn best by listening and being around great people. I think, you know, that's probably one of the ways I've learned the most and a lot of literary mentors. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to learn, too, if we're open and our hearts are able to, to attend to those things. And I've had just great experiences working with colleagues as well. I've learned a lot from them through the years. 
So how did your time in Venezuela come to an end? After the, uh, the revolution of Chavez, we began to realize that probably politically things would be very difficult for anyone who held a U.S. passport to stay. So when we came to the end of the, after many people left through the years of violence just because they felt it was unsafe for their children and, and them as a family to be there, uh, the few of us that were still there in Venezuela had to make the decision as to whether we would transition out or whether we would stay. And those of us who were passport holders from the United States decided that probably we would be more of a detriment staying, just the tension that it would cause for our friends and our Venezuelan brothers and sisters. So we were actually made the decision to leave. Actually, what we had intended to accomplish was finished and able to be left in the hands of the nationals there. So it was... Um, and how have they held it since then? It's, it's been interesting. They've had great challenges. And to have a training institute for pastors with no teachers, some of the people from Peru have come in and taught courses there for them. Um, the last time I tried to go in, I was denied a passport, denied a visa, rather. Mm. So I was unable to go back into Venezuela to teach for them. Which is sad. It's very hard. Yeah. You know, we think that we have things tough in the U.S. sometimes. Uh-uh. Not at all. So how long of a gap was there between when you were done in Venezuela and you arrived in Mexico? I came back then from Venezuela and took a year home assignment and left, left Newton again in 2009. And I've been in Mexico City ever since. 2009, you said. Mm -hmm. So you've had two four-year runs in Mexico City? I've had one four-and-a-half-year run and one four-year run. Okay. <laughs> and, and what do you do there? What do you do when you're there? What's your role? My role is to walk alongside um, Mexican people who have potential for leadership, whether it's in making disciples as well as those who are actually serving in a leadership role, and to mentor them and walk with them in the area of their formation and their soul, soul formation, spiritual formation, and disciple making, all kinds of things, leadership courses. I've taught a lot in or what we call facilitating adult learning. In mm -hmm. those settings, as well as been the one who's just facilitating your first discipleship class. I like the new beginners, and I like the ones who are walking along a little bit further ahead. So what is leadership in that context? What are the things that leaders have to learn? And is it, is it just spiritual leadership, or is it kind of ministry leadership? You said it's really soul formation, spiritual formation. That's the area where my passion lies. Yeah, it's also your nuts and bolts leadership and your theological training courses, your Bible knowledge, everything that, that a leader would need in order to lead ministry well in his or her context. So thinking about Community Heights, you've been here for a few months now, maybe more than a few months. Mm -hmm. What does soul formation look like in our context? For instance, there was a guy that just showed up this past Sunday. He walked in the door and I recognized that I had never seen him before. Turns out it was the first time he'd ever come in. I don't know where his spiritual life is, but if he decided to engage in a mentoring program, let's say with uh, one guy who was going to mentor three men, and he was going to be one of the three, what are some things about this guy? Let's call him John. What are the things about John that we would think is important? You know, I think it would be a process of getting to know him, understanding where he is in his relationship with God, and where he how much of understanding he has of what it means to follow Jesus and be like Jesus in, in whatever context. The challenges are the same. <laughs> There's still that continuing need to grow deeper in our faith in Christ. 
And what does that mean? It means understanding that my egocentrism has to be confronted with Christ and who he is in me and also in his word. And I think it's interesting. You can do, you can look at it as discipleship and spiritual formation from the get go. How do we, how do we identify those people? God is moving into leadership roles. That's a whole different process. I heard also in his word Mm -hmm. was a little clip out of what she said. I didn't hear anything about like discipleship classes, Bible studies, uh, scripture memory, prayer walks, none of these tangible things. You just talked about a surrender of the egocentrism. And I'm thinking about that little picture where, you know, you take yourself off the throne of your heart and you put Christ as the king on the throne of your life. Is that kind of what you're talking about? I am talking about that. That's not to exclude all the things you've mentioned. It's Mm -hmm. certainly the word of God is a central part of that. I don't think we become followers of Christ apart from the word of God. Okay. So there would be, that would be what I would understand in helping, you know, walk alongside some person. Definitely want to be in the word. You definitely want to hide the word in your heart. You want to, you want to memorize. You want to understand the role of communication with God or prayer. Those are all things that are nuts and bolts of becoming a follower of Christ. How we get at each of those things and how they come along in the whole process and how we walk alongside people may be very different from culture to culture or place to place, depending where they're starting. And it could be different from person to person. Right. You know, I guess I'm, I'm reacting a little bit to my past and at a different, maybe a different time mm-hmm. when discipleship was a course that you would take, you know, or little boxes that you could check off or achievements that you could get to. Discipleship is a relationship that also involves a relationship between the disciplee and any of the disciplers in their life. Right. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing that you do in Mexico. And tell me about the organization that you work with. Is it is it a church or is it like the the CMA outpost in downtown Mexico City or <laughs> what's it look like? Okay, I work with the Christian Missionary Alliance. I happen to be working on, I'm seconded to the Canadian team because they're the ones who are working in Mexico City. So my teammates are, are um, Canadians and we work basically to engage people, first of all, in spiritual conversations. Then as we move along, and hopefully they make a decision to follow Jesus, then we are, we are concerned about moving into what we would call church planting or planting communities of faith where people can grow and reach out to their neighbors and continue to move along as followers of Christ. So my role right now is to walk alongside one in particular, one community of faith where I'm involved every Sunday, where I may facilitate a discipleship group, or I may facilitate a leader development group. and pour my life into that local community of faith. I also am assigned to the other churches that are CMA churches around the city, which means that I'm involved looking for opportunities to mentor or disciple those who are in already in leadership roles or ministry roles in serving. I'm all over the place, actually. <laughs> so you work with Canadians, uh-huh. eh? Eh? Yeah, and they've all learned Spanish. Yes. They don't, do they say eh in Spanish? They do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they do. <laughs> Does it come out the same way? Uh, almost. I think it would be pretty similar. Yeah, That's interesting. They probably say it more than the Canadians I work with, actually. <laughs> so are you the only American that works on this Canadian team? That's right. The gifts you have to offer and your experience fits with them, but does the does the American CMA missions group 
talk to the Canadian CMA Missions Group? They're two different groups, right? Right. Very two separate entities. Yes, and, right. and how did they like share you? How they figure that out? Well, when I transitioned to Mexico, um, basically they had opportunities for leader development in Guadalajara, which is where the, it kind of just happened that the U.S. people are all in Guadalajara and, and the Canadians are all in Mexico City. But each of our leaders, each of our team leaders are, are very committed to the same goals and mission, and they work together closely. However, as far as my placement, I was open to be placed in Guadalajara at the time. They didn't really have any need for me there. See, I was drawn to Mexico City because there was a young church planning team there. And I was drawn to the ways that they were engaging with the, with the communities and starting to form relationships with people, mm-hmm. first of all. And bring people in in a natural way, going their way. We didn't start out with a church building. We started out with a a social gathering and teaching English as a second language. And people from all walks of life and relationships that you you made friends with in natural ways started coming to our group. And then we began to move toward each of us telling them about Jesus, first of all. But it, it was a... It was a very motley crew, if you want to call it. We had a lot of non-believers in our group as we were going along. Some of them did not become believers. Some of them, some of them did. Did some of them did? Some of them are still walking with the Lord and are part of of local communities of faith. It was unconventional. It was very different than what we would have known as church planting, one hundred and one. Yeah. Time in times past, and yes. you were drawn to. A group of young mavericks doing something differently. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very messy, very innovative, very different. When Once you got into it, were, were there times when you thought to yourself, oh, what did I jump into here? I'm a little uncomfortable with this because I'm old enough to be tied a little bit to traditional methods and this is stretching me. Well, I've always kind of run against the current, even in theological training, because I think we have missed the boat in some ways. We've educated people, but we haven't trained them to do the work of ministry. So that has always been my, how should I say, my discontent with our system for training leaders. What's the difference between educating somebody and training them for ministry? I think you can have an academic understanding of what ministry is about, and you can learn all the good things that are taught in seminaries that are very helpful. You mean like? doctrine and teaching and preparing lessons and messages and things like that. Yeah, that's very good. There's, there are very good tools given to us. I think what actually has happened is they've become a form. They don't help people learn to love God with all of their being and then love their neighbors self. So we've lost the great commandment in our effort to, to meet the great commission. So be careful now. You're going to start speaking my language. In my previous church, I mean, I'd been searching for this thing that I didn't know I was searching for, for probably 10, 15 years. And about 10 years ago, just trying to boil things down and take things from being complex to simple, I landed on that love your neighbor as yourself command. And a lot of people have landed on that in the last 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, it's a reaction to you know what we've been as mm-hmm. the American church for a number of decades. So talk about that just a little bit. Like what you, How long have you been seeing this and been discontent with this lack of training people to actually love God and teach others to love God? Probably since college, <laughs> undergrad. I've been on that journey. 
always looking for ways to train leaders, develop leaders, not the idea of educating leaders. Why? Because most of the leadership fallout that we find in any experience cross-culturally, and I think here, really isn't for poor doctrine. It's for lack of integrity as people or lack of understanding or not even being aware of how we have not been formed by Christ in us. So we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable in some ways. Okay. So it's not that we want to throw out that. It's, it has a part, so and it what, has what, a very you, good part. It's open to the charge of, hey, you're soft on academics. You're soft on truth and information and knowledge and scripture because you're just talking about things of the heart. It wouldn't be that because that, that scripture and that truth has to be there for our hearts to be confronted. However, it's how we go about bringing that truth to light. Is it brought to light with a relationship background always or, or the base of relationship underneath? Or is it brought to light from an academic poured into my mind and therefore I will immediately be changed? Maybe or maybe not. Most likely not. You, ha- you must have truth or you don't have anything from my perspective. But how we get at that truth and how people are discipled are very different. How Jesus treated Peter was different than how he treated some of his other disciples. So this past Sunday, I, I mentioned if you have truth without relationship, or relationship without truth, are, are you getting to some of that? That would be part of it, yes. Okay, mm-hmm. so truth without relationship looks like what? I would say legalism, okay. what we saw in the Pharisees. In relationship without truth is? I would call it, if you want to use the overused term, a social gospel. <laughs> Okay. It doesn't have, I mean, how can, you can have a relationship, but it probably won't be built on genuine love or genuine sacrifice or genuine fruit of the Spirit. There okay. has to and, be a relationship. And, and truth and relationship looks like what? It looks like lives being changed. It looks okay. like confrontation. Good answer. That was a good answer. Life change. Mm-hmm. Transformation. That's right. There, aren't, there is no room in my heart for a judgmental attitude. There needs to be a change in my attitude. Christ always confronts who I am with who he is. I either attend to that or listen to him or I don't. It's my choice. That's the obedience choice. And actually, the whole discipleship formation process is a series of choices of turning toward him or turning away. So as our people here at Community Heights are listening to this, I mean, this is challenging, right? This is challenging. What, what do you think for, if I'm the, there's not an average churchgoer, okay? There's no average church member, but let's just say that there's an average, uh, we'll call them John and Jane again. What should John and Jane be thinking about if they want to follow Jesus, they attend Community Heights Church, what's the priority for their life? What's the priority in their thinking? If they want to grow in their followership of Jesus, what types of things should they be considering? For me, I think it's important to be involved in something in the Word with people, learning in the Word of God in relationship with others. And I also think that there needs to be an element of service. I need to ask myself, okay, where is God moving me into serving? In my community or in my local church or both or either or whatever. But if you're really a follower of Christ, you must be interacting with him in the word, and you must be moved or motivated out of love for him to serve. Okay, so growth in the word, growth in service, but you said growth in the word with others. So talk just for a second about theology and community. Why is that important, and what does that look like for the local church attender? 
Well, I think it's interesting that Jesus called 12 disciples very different, different backgrounds. Obviously, they didn't get along together very well. We know that from reading the passage about James and John and, and Peter and the rest of them. And I think that that's where the rubber meets the road. I will be confronted by the Word of God and how I live out His relationship in me with others. It's never a Lone Ranger journey. So it may not be smooth. Exactly. It won't be. It, it won't be, and that's okay. Maybe I should get out of that small group then. Depends. Is a small group really engaging, you know, with the Word? You know, it just depends. Or maybe you need to do a different kind of small group. Or maybe your small group is doing that. That's great. But are you thinking about what next? Not that I'm going to sit in this small group and I'm glad I'm here and nobody else is invited. So growth through the Word and then growth in serving. Today, in this day and age, people are busy. They're very busy. What if they don't have time to serve? Well, then we probably, each of us needs to look at our priorities. Are we living with kingdom priorities and values? Or are we simply moved by our dominant culture and by their values and priorities? Dominant culture. What's the dominant culture? I'm not sure anymore because I think it's changing a lot. I think uh, the dominant culture is, in many communities, is run by certain programs in schools. Um, It may be run by recreational activities. I don't know what really moves people. So dominant culture to you, it's a localized thing. It could be a localized thing. It could be a localized. Each each local will have their own expression. Local situation will have their own expression of the dominant culture. The dominant culture would be, it's me, myself, and I. Get ahead. Earn money. That's a priority in life. I don't think for the millennials that is a priority in life anymore. Okay. I think that's something that is going, the church has an opportunity to engage with them at a different level. So getting back to Jane and John member, they have to be thinking about how they're interacting with the word in community with others Mm -hmm. uh, and how they're interacting and serving God. What does a person learn by serving? We learn lots of things. <laughs> but like, is there, so some people think that serving is me giving away, me giving out, me serving others. But what does it actually do for the person? In other words, if I don't serve, what am I going to miss out on? You'll miss out on learning from others. You'll miss out on learning from God. Because if you're going to be in a relationship, you're going to be serving others or with others, you will certainly encounter conflict and differences. And you will encounter lots of opportunities to let Christ increase and let me decrease. Yeah. And as people, when we encounter conflict, we tend to want to pull back. We don't, uh, and depending on our temperament, right, we don't want to engage it. We want to disengage. We want to retreat. And so sometimes in church, it means uh, retreating from a ministry. Sometimes in, in more severe situations, it might mean retreating from the church family and finding another one where there's less conflict. Why is conflict not to be retreated from? Why maybe at times do we actually need to engage it? I think we always need to ask ourselves in a situation of conflict, what is my part? That's the opportunity that comes with conflict. What of my values do I think are being stepped on here? Or am I aware of how how I've played a part in this conflict. What's God teaching me through conflict? Conflict is a part of life. If I don't stay in it, I probably won't grow. I need to stay in it and allow God to refine me. It may not come out like I like it. It might not be resolved. You may live with the angst of unresolved conflict, but we can go deeper with Christ in that. 
That's good. I like that. So, Norma, you're here for how long? I, th- I hear you going on tour very, very shortly. Today is, I think it's September, what, 17th today? 19th. 19th. September 19th today. Uh, what's your schedule look like in the coming months? I'm gone every weekend. I basically ministry from now until about the first part of November is, is out every weekend in different churches. And then in this weeks. region? In Nebraska and Iowa. Okay, Nebraska and Iowa. And then when do you go back to Mexico? I, Lord willing, I'll head back in June of 2019. Okay, so we got, we've got some time mm-hmm. then. And will you do a spring missions tour as well? I will. Okay, and then, and then finally, what are the types of things that you want to experience or, or complete or do or accomplish between now, other than going out on these mission tours and speaking at these different churches, not really speaking, living with these different church communities and interacting with them. What are other things do you want to do before you go back to Mexico in June? Well, I hope I have opportunities to engage with people here at Community Heights. I really, I've been gone for about 10 years, so I really don't know a lot of people. And those that sent me out many years ago are in the Lord's presence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I really need to engage with the people here and understand, you know, how I can have them partner with me and what we're doing in Mexico City or in Mexico as a country. And I hope for some time to study. I am working toward a program that will help me serve better in the area of life transformation. And, and But that probably won't start until I, almost till I leave. Okay. Because there's a year waiting list for that. In Nebraska and Iowa, one of those weekends is actually here. Yes. At Community Heights. I think it's in November mm-hmm. that you'll be speaking on that weekend. And we'll get right. to hear from you. I think for those of you who are listening to this episode with Norma, You've got a taste of what you might experience when she speaks to our church in November. I'm looking forward to that. Norma, is there any parting shot you would like to give to a Community Heights person? Any challenge, any spiritual shot in the arm? I just want to say, you know, looking back after 35 years, following Jesus isn't easy, but it really is so rich and full. And I think, you know, you never lose in following Jesus. You only gain. Hmm. So follow him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, and with all your body, and love your neighbors yourself. 